glad to be here tonight. Uh, I just, being here, singing with you, seeing you here, uh, makes me glad. So I'm really thankful for this time together. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for coming. This is great. Uh, I have to tell you, I love, you might have noticed, I love to preach. Uh, I love preaching on Sunday morning, but there's a big difference to me between preaching on a Sunday morning and doing something like this. Um, when it comes to Sunday morning, there's so many things that have to be crafted. You spend so much time thinking about the way you're going to say things and uh, honestly crafting your phrases and being all this stuff together. Uh, on an evening like this, it just provides you an opportunity uh, really to uh, preach in a sense the word, but uh, in a setting that I think is just so much more relaxed and comfortable. And I have to tell you, I love preaching, but I really love this. Uh, this is fun for me. So, uh, I was going to do this whether you came or not, so thanks for coming. Uh, hey, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Uh, Mark chapter 16. We're going to be looking at two verses right at the very end, verses 15 and 16. Now, some of you uh, more astute Bible scholars are going to say, wait a minute, Pastor, I wasn't even sure the end of Mark 16 was actually supposed to be in the Bible. Some of you are going to have these little brackets and going to say may not be in earlier manuscripts. We're just not going to talk about that, all right? So uh, if you do want to talk about it, I'm happy to. But uh, I do want to talk for a little bit tonight about Matthew 16, 15 through 16. When I was in college, um, I was my major was cross-cultural studies, which means not much. But uh, there were kind of two parts of it. We studied anthropology and people and cultures. At the same time, we studied biblical missions. So it was... Uh, trying to understand how to prepare uh, missionaries. And that was a real passion of mine. My senior year of college, we got a new director of missions for the school. I had three classes with him over those two semesters. And it's so interesting. You know, they always say that people remember things you can repeat over and over and over again. And uh, I don't know if I ever learned that lesson more than I learned it with this guy. Uh, because the one thing that he harped on in every class I had him with is the five great commission passages there. Five different times in which we're given the Great Commission. He wanted us to know them, to have them memorized, so every quiz, every test you had with him, you had to write out, among everything else, the five Great Commission passages. And it really is significant that there are five uh, kind of versions of this, and although we often, most of all, think of Matthew 28, and I gave the easiest one last week to Sky. Um, <laughs> I mean, what preacher would have served on Matthew 28? Give me a break. Uh, we've never done Matthew 16. But uh, even though Matthew 28 is, is the most common one, there are five different times in which we're given this commission in different ways. And, and the five different times matter to us. Why? Well, the same reason it's important that we have four Gospels. We have four different Gospels really giving us essentially the same story. Three of them, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain much of the same material. John has a lot of unique material. But why do we need four different versions of the same story? Well, they're written by different men to different audiences, and all of them for distinct different purposes. So if we were to um, all experience some of we'll just take Sunday morning. We had a little bit of a medical emergency. I don't know if you remember that on a Sunday morning. And uh, I was talking to a couple of people. One family told me they were on the other side of the room, and they didn't see what was happening. They were just looking at me. I didn't realize this, but they said, your facial expressions were telling us how things were going. If I would have known that, I might have done things differently. But So we all experienced that, yet we're going to have a hundred different versions of what happened and how it happened. They're not conflicting versions, they're just different perspectives. And it's so great to get four different Gospels 
to see different stories in different lights. And there's a lot of great examples. You take the story of the lost sheep. Uh, it's recorded twice, once in Luke 15, once in Matthew 18. It's the exact same story for two completely different purposes. In Matthew 18, the context of the lost sheep is clearly that there are people, a part of the church, who have wandered away and you need to go after them. In Luke 15, the context is very clearly Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are mad at him and he gives the story of the lost sheep, meaning you should go after lost people. Same story, two different meanings. And so it is, it's, it's important for us to have these different perspectives. And it's the same with these great commission texts. Is that they're all communicating to us essentially the same things, yet at the same time they're giving us a different perspective, and we need that. So Matthew, as we talked about last week, gives us really the fullest explanation. Uh, Jesus very clearly says, go in and make disciples. And that's, a, that's an important term, meaning that our responsibility is to lead people to Christ, to uh, call people to follow Jesus Christ. And then it says we should baptize them, meaning we're calling them into a life of obedience. If you say you trust Christ, then follow him in baptism. It's the, the first demonstration that you trust Christ. And then teach them to observe everything that I have uh, taught you. And so it makes us know that the commission doesn't end in simply preaching. It doesn't end with the gospel presentation. It goes on to leading people to Christ and then baptizing them and teaching them. So we do get the fullest kind of explanation of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And then we come to Mark, which may be my favorite. Mark is certainly my favorite gospel. Mark is the gospel for people with attention deficit issues. <laughs> All right? So if you meet someone who has this incredible inability uh, to concentrate, do not tell them to go read Matthew or John, especially Luke, where you've got like these 50-verse chapters. Don't do that. Give them to Mark, because in Mark, every story is quick and to the point. Uh, Mark just gives us these snapshots of everything that is going on. It is very quick-moving. It's a very fun gospel to read. I've preached it multiple times. My favorite gospel uh, to preach is just quick and simple and direct and to the point. And no extras, no frills. You can find a story in Mark, and you just don't get much. And then you look at it in Matthew and go, oh, there you go. There's a ton of more details. But Mark wasn't concerned with that. And that's exactly kind of the feel you get from his Great Commission passage. It's just right directly to the point. So look at it in Mark 16, 15, and 16. It says, And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And that's essentially what he's saying. That's it. But then he adds in verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's it. Go, go into all the world. Claim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes is baptized is saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, I think every time the Great Commission is given to us, there is a different focus. So in Matthew, you have this emphasis on the authority of Jesus Christ. Scott did a great job of talking about that last week. Uh, in Luke, you get the clearest explanation of actually the gospel message. Uh, we're going to talk about this next week. It just clearly articulates the message of the gospel. What is it that we are to proclaim? Uh, John is talking about the messenger. As the Father sent me, so I sent you. So it really talks more about the one who's being sent. And then Acts tells us about the power of the mission. How is it that we can accomplish this? But what's unique about Mark is Mark, I believe, emphasizes the motive for the mission. The motive. Why is it that the mission should matter to us? Now, motive matters. But why does motive matter? Because motive is, is motivation. Motive 
is the reason for a specific action. So you might remember just last year, the 2017 Vegas shooting, when a guy by the name of Stephen Paddock uh, stood on right outside of his uh, window in a hotel and killed 58 people. And the big issue for a long time was motive. Uh, they said they, they went, followed over a thousand leads, not got a thousand leads, they followed a thousand leads, and to this day, they really still don't understand. They scoured his computer, they talked to his family members, they don't have a real good uh, understanding of why he would do something like that. And they really tried, and they're still trying. They said, well, why? Why does it matter? I mean, he's dead, they're dead. Why, why does it matter that there's a motive? And the reason it matters is this, is because if they figure out the motive, they might be able to stop someone else from doing the same thing. But what is it that motivated this guy? There's something that motivated this guy to do what he did. And so for the police, motive matters so that they can stop that same action in the future. On the positive side, motive matters so we can start actions in the future. What is it that's going to motivate us to do the Great Commission? I mean, there's not anybody here tonight that doesn't know we should be engaged in the Great Commission. You know that. But why? Why does it matter? And motive is what leads to action. If there's no motive, you might do something simply just because you know you're supposed to do it. But God not only cares that we do the right things, he cares that we do it for the right reason. Motive matters to God. So it is that we need to understand the motive for the mission. So what I want to do is I want to give you three observations from Mark 16. There are two that don't directly have to do with motive, and then the last one I really want to talk about what the motive is. So if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write down these three observations. So the first is the activity of the mission. Write that down. The activity of the mission. What is the activity that we are to be doing in the Great Commission. And I love the simplicity of this. Here it is. Going to all the world. And I'm going to focus on the second part first. Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now, again, Matthew includes a lot more than this. Even in a way that forces us to think a little bit deeper. Because we say make disciples. You would be amazed, or maybe would if you ever studied Matthew 28, the amount that has been written on what it means to actually make a disciple. People have a really hard time understanding what it means to make a disciple. Well, Mark takes out all the confusion, and he says, okay, okay, if you've had trouble understanding Matthew, Mark says, well, let me tell you what it means. What it means is this, proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Speak the message of the gospel. The mission of the church and the mission of every believer at its most basic sense is this, the verbal communication of the message of the gospel. The truth that every person is born enslaved to sin, spiritually dead, disobedient, and doomed, separated from God, that they were created to know him. And if they will, by faith, trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, they can not only have their sins forgiven, but they can be brought back into a right fellowship with God. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they can live a new life where they experience the very power of God through them. That's the gospel that we're called to proclaim. So Mark says very clearly, listen, here's the mission. The mission is just go proclaim the gospels. Making disciples always begins with evangelism. So to be uh, engaged in the mission means to be engaged in proclaiming the gospel. Now, some of you may have heard uh, this little phrase that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, 
which is preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that? Uh, you hear that all the time. Uh, you didn't talk about this last week. You did? Oh, I'm sorry, before. Did you talk about the uh, sissy scholar that came back? No, I didn't. Okay, okay. So, so here's the deal. In 2009, in 2009, there was a great Christianity Day article. You can still uh, look at it uh, by a guy named Mark Galley. And Mark Galley had written his doctoral dissertation on St. Francis. And he just decided he was really sick of hearing this phrase. And so he read everything he could by St. Francis and discovered two very important things. He discovered, first of all, that he never said it. And second of all, that he absolutely never would have said it. And wrote in this that St. Francis was, above all things, a gospel preacher. No preacher is going to say you don't need to use words. We get paid to use words. We're not going to say that. We're not going to make a case that you don't need a preacher. So he gives this whole long case in which he says everything in St. Francis's life, all of his convictions, all of his writing goes directly against this basic truth that there has to be verbal communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the activity of the mission? It's communicating the gospel. And that's so challenging, I think, to all of us because we do often get this idea that we're engaged in the mission of God and we're doing a hundred different things. But at the most basic level, if we're not communicating the gospel, we're not engaged in the mission of God. That is the activity of the Great Commission. And I just love the simplicity. What are we to do? Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So that's the activity. The next is the scope. Write that down. The scope of the mission. Mark is clear on this. The scope of the mission when he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Isn't it amazing? And this, again, uh, I think oftentimes people think of Mark as a simpler gospel. I would say I think it be simpler. It's just a lot shorter and more concise. Uh, I've done a ton of study in the Gospel of Luke, and I would say there's a lot of depth. I mean, in Mark, there's a lot of depth in Mark, but he just says it quickly. I mean, think about how much he says in these few words. Go into all the world, claim the gospel to the whole creation. Part of the activity is not just sharing, but part of the activity, listen, is going to places for the purpose of sharing. When I was in college, um, I had a, uh, a class on missions in which there was a lot of debate, again with Matthew 28, on uh, what it means to make a disciple and whether the emphasis is on going or making disciples. Now, whenever you're studying the text of Scripture, the number one thing you're looking for is what we call the imperative. It's the command. And what we learn in studying the Bible is that everything revolves around the command. So when you listen to me preach, uh, this was clear last week, uh, you're going to see me revolve the text around what is the command, what is the imperative. So the big thing in Matthew 28 is the command in Matthew 28 is make disciples. The command is not go. So a lot of people then begin to say, well, what that means is as you're going, make disciples. Because the emphasis is make disciples, not on going. I would say, yes, you should make disciples as you go. That's really great advice. Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, be making disciples. But if you follow that up with the clear teaching of Mark, and again, these are building upon one another, then it shows that there is an actual activity that we must be engaged in that demands that we purposely go somewhere for the purpose of sharing the gospel. So it's not just, man, as I'm going about my regular daily life, I'm going to be making disciples. Yes, absolutely. It's more than that. 
that we are to be going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel to the whole creation. Every church I've ever been a part of, you always have someone who says something like this. And I haven't been here long enough to, for you to think I'm pointing this at you because I don't know. So. <laughs> Every church I've ever been in, why are we spending so much time and so much money taking the gospel around the world when we're not even taking the gospel around our community? Right? Now, okay. There are a lot of churches that are really good at taking the gospel somewhere else and not taking the community. That's a legitimate thought and concern. The answer to that concern is not stop taking it to the world, but start taking it to your community. <laughs> but I, it's so funny. Every church, I don't know why we're spending all this money, sending all these short-term mission trips, taking the gospel in the area, you're not even going to your neighbor. Okay, that's fine, legitimate. But I'm just saying you read the Gospel of Mark, and it is very clear that the whole world and the whole creation must hear the gospel, and the mission is not complete until every single one is heard. That's the mission. I mean, I think Mark is giving us this, this broader picture in order to motivate us to say, listen, they, the entire world needs to hear the gospel. Go into all the world. I mean, let's just take that phrase. Go into all the world. You cannot obey, go into all the world if you never leave your community. That doesn't mean you necessarily have to be the one to do it. We have to be a part of a church that is finding a way to go into all the world. How do you get more simple than what Mark says, go into all the world? That has to be a part of the scope. We have to take this to everyone. Now, what I love here at the end, look at the end of verse 15. Go into all the world. And I think even that could be vague. If it's not vague at the end, then proclaim the gospel, what? To the whole creation. To every person who's been created by God. You know, we do talk, and this is significant, that every nation, tongue, and tribe. We need to talk about that. That's great. But sometimes I, I fear that in our talk about nation, tongue, and tribe, we forget that nation, tongues, and tribe are made up of people that need to hear the gospel. The, the goal to get to a nation or a tongue or a tribe is because there's people in that tongue and tribe and nation. Mark says he needs to hear the gospel with every single creation. I was, um, Andrew and I were with the family and out uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks and we spent the first few days in um, a little place that Andrew's family has. And um, I have discovered about myself getting a little insight here. This is the kind of stuff we can talk about on Wednesday that I'll look at on Sunday. <laughs> If I don't get up early and have some time alone, I'm just super cranky. Now, I could also be cranky after I've done that. But generally speaking, <laughs> um, she, I saw it before her eye and go, I, this is like super, I have to get up, be alone. It's not even just time with the Lord. It's just, my, I'm a closet introvert. I've got to have some time alone. So uh, I got up early every morning, just got on the balcony, just had some time with Jesus. And I, the Lord was speaking to me a lot from the book of Joshua. And I was just thinking about mission, vision for our church. And that's all stuff that God is stirring up in my heart. And I just, I just thought about the simple idea of a vision for all people in all places to follow Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good vision. It's not vague. We, what do we want as a church? What do we ultimately want? We want all people in all places to follow Jesus Christ. I think something about that stirs me up 
to drive in to save my neighbor. And in the remotest parts of Indonesia, and after all people, in all places, everybody, all of them following Jesus. I think Mark's kind of stirring up that vision in us. He's saying, listen, what do we need to be doing with this gospel? Every single creature needs to hear the gospel. And if you discover a place that has not heard the gospel, what do you do? Go. Go. Figure it out. Find them. So you have the activity and the scope is to all the world and the whole creation. But look lastly at the motive for the mission, and that's really verse 16. So um, the activity, the scope, and the last thing is the motive for the mission. Now I'm going to tell you what the motive is, and then I'm going to kind of tease it out a little bit. So what I would say is this, the motive is simply love of God and love of others. Okay? But I want to show you how Paul teaches us that. I mean, Mark, Paul didn't write everything. Mark in, uh, in verse 16. All right. Mark does bring up one thing no one else brings up. Can anyone imagine what that would be in verse 16? No other Great Commission passage brings up what Mark brings up in verse 16. Yeah, condemnation. He brings up hell. He brings up the consequences that are at stake if we don't obey this. No one else it's not that they don't believe, it's just, again, the beauty of having four different gospel presentations. We all know. You read Matthew 18, you know that there's consequences. I'm just telling you, Mark states it. Every single person who doesn't believe is condemned. So he puts a little bit more weight to the issue than anyone else does. And what he simply says in verse 16 is that every single person in all of the creation falls into one of two categories. Those who believe and are saved. So he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And those who do not believe and are condemned. Every person. Every person who passed, every person in this room, every person in all of the whole world, every creation falls into one or two categories. They believe, baptized, or saved, or they are condemned. So even with that, as that begins to sink in, do you feel like how that stirs up something in us that Matthew 28 doesn't stir up? Do you feel that? Just a weight the consequences here? Now, notice a few key words. Verse 16. First of all, whoever believes. So, we are not only proclaiming the gospel, we are calling people to believe. And let me just say this, by the way, you have not proclaimed the gospel unless you've called someone to respond. Part of the gospel message is response. Therefore, you must repent and believe. And so, what we're saying in the gospel is, here's the facts of what Jesus did now, you must make a decision. You must Believe, And so it's talking about those who believe the message of the gospel and those who are baptized. They say, well, what? that's confusing. I mean, do you have to be baptized to follow Jesus? Let me tell you what Mark's thinking here. Particularly in the first century, it was easy, easier to claim to be a Christian if you didn't go public. So if you stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I don't not much is going to happen to you. I don't know. You might come from a family that hates Jesus, and you don't get invited back to family holidays. You, you might, you could potentially, I guess, get fired from work if you follow Jesus. But here's the deal. If you went public with your faith here, the consequences could be detrimental. Well, the problem with baptism is it's a public demonstration if you follow Jesus. So if you, listen to this, if you led someone to Jesus Christ and said, well, Jesus says the first thing you do is get baptized, and they refuse to get baptized, do you believe they're actually following Jesus? It's hard to believe someone is a follower of Jesus if they absolutely refuse to publicly say they're a follower of Jesus Christ. 
So what, what baptism does, it's not you have to add a work to salvation, is baptism is really one of the first ways in which we demonstrate our obedience to Jesus Christ. We had this email about three weeks ago, uh, which sadly, uh, <coughs> I kind of feel guilty about, so if you're the one who wrote this email, you can send it back to me. Uh, I deleted the email somehow, and I can't find it in my deleted folders because I went back for it even today and couldn't find it. But uh, here was kind of the gist of the email. Pastor Josh, are you one of those guys who, <laughs> I love when they start like that. Are you one of those guys who, and the only thing worse than that is, hey, Pastor Josh, I love you, but uh, <laughs> you're doing a great job, but um, are you one of those guys that believes you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you have to obey in order to be saved? In other words, do, do you think there's you're adding something to salvation? I, I think you just have to simply believe. What I would say is you're creating a false dichotomy there, because if you look at Hebrews 11 on what faith is, faith is always active. Every person who had faith in Hebrews 11 did something. Noah built. Abraham went. Not knowing where he's going. I mean, every one of them did something. And so it is, this is what baptism is. Say, listen, are, 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 do you believe in Jesus? Yes, well, Jesus says be baptized. I don't want to do that. Well, I, I'm just going to question if you actually have faith in Jesus Christ. So he's not adding anything. He's just saying our job is to call people to trust and follow Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. Do you have enough faith to follow him? And then he, then he says, look at the other word here. Whoever believes is baptized, these are key words, will be saved. Now, the reason that word is important is because in order to be saved, you're, you're being rescued from something. So before he ever brings in condemnation here, he says that there, there is something that every person needs to be saved from. There's a great little book uh, by R.C. Sproul called Saved From What? And in the beginning of the book, he tells this quite humorous story. He says he was in the ball and he was walking around. And this is R.C. Sproul. And he said someone approached him and said, have you been saved? And being a little bit snarky and cynical as he could be, uh, and being a theologian, he looked at the person and said, saved from what? And he said the person looked at him and actually had no idea what to say. <laughs> saved from what? That's a good question. Saved from what? And he goes throughout the book and says, here's what we've been saved from. We get a hint in the word condemnation, but the truth is it's not just simply saved from the reality of hell. It's saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath is poured out on everyone who is not a believer. Where's the condemnation come from? The condemnation comes from, from God. We, we're judged by a just and righteous judge because of our sin. And the only way we can get free from that is if someone takes that judgment for us, which is what Jesus does. So we're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from condemnation. We're saved from hell. And so what he's saying is if you believe... You're saved. You're free from that condemnation. You're free from the wrath of God. You're, you're no longer under his anger. You're under his loving kindness. And then he goes on to say this. He says, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Meaning you'll be declared guilty by a holy and righteous God. Those who are saved are saved from the judgment of God in hell. That's what hell is. It is the eternal judgment of God. Okay, so what does this have to do with voting? Here it is. The first part of the motive on why we should care about this, what is it, what is it that motivates us to do this, is, is first of all our love for God. At the most basic level, God has given us a very easy and clear command. I mean easy in that it is simple to understand. Go, speak the gospel, and call people to believe. 1 
First John is, is very clear all throughout First John that if we love Him, we will keep His. Yeah, we'll keep His commandments. How do we know we love God? Because there's something in us out of a love for God that desires to please Him, that desires to do what He says, that understands the greatest life is the life under uh, the obedience to everything that God says. There's something in us that longs to obey. And so it is. It is hard. To, it's hard to take a command like this and refuse to be engaged in it at the same time say, I love God. And so my love for God, my desire to please God, my desire to know God, to be intimate with God, brings me to a text like this and says, God, I want to be engaged in this because I love you. And another side of this, this text reveals the heart of God. His love for people, his love for the nations, his love for all of the creation he's made. And I, I, want, I want the heart of God. I want to embrace the heart of God. I want to love what God loves. I want to hate what God hates. And so as someone who is saying, Lord, I love you, and I, I want to be what you want me to be, and I think the Lord responds to us and says, listen, if you love me, then, then keep my commandments. So love of God motivates for this. But I think on the other side, it's, it's love for others, specifically love for the lost. This realization that every single person who is not saved will die That it is a reality. So uh, I wrote a paper uh, as an entrance paper for my doctoral studies, and I decided to write on Jonathan Edwards' Doctrine of Hell. This is something he's known for. Uh, you know, sinners and hands make the God, and he gives very, very graphic descriptions of hell. But it wasn't just that sermon. This was really significant throughout his ministry. So I took all of the sermons I could find and his two-volume complete works, and everything I possibly could, found everything related to judgment and hell. Uh, wrote an extensive paper on this, and I came up with three words that describe Jonathan Edwards' view of hell, which is a biblical view. It is this, conscious, eternal torment. Those three are all essential. Conscious, eternal torment. Conscious, meaning there's no soul sleep. You don't die and go to sleep. You're awake. You're conscious. Okay? So all of the truth is conscious, whether in heaven or hell. Eternal. It never ends. There is never an ending to heaven. There is never an ending to hell. Every single person lives forever. Conscious, eternal, and torment. That the reason Jonathan Edwards gives such dramatic descriptions of hell is because he actually believed that there was literal fire. That it was literally painful. That there was actual torment while you're awake for all eternity. What Mark is saying here is every single person in this room is going to end up in one of those two places. And every person out there is going to end up in one of those two places. And yes, we need to be faithful to our community, yet at the same time, most everyone in our community drives past a thousand churches every day, and there are people out there at the ends of the earth that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. I think this idea of a simple love for other people <coughs> should motivate us to action. That's not a bad motivation. That is a good motivation. When I was a kid, uh, the church I was in, when my father was pastor, passed out uh, stickers one time. And, uh, if I was back at my parents' house in Atlanta, I think I could find an old Bible where this was in. But there were these gold stickers. They were about this big. And I remember these not only because they gave them out, but because I, somehow our house ended up with rolls of them. Uh, that's what happened here with pastors. So, but they gave me everybody was stuck in our Bible, and here's what it said. Lord, help me never get used to seeing men and women and boys and girls die 
Lord, help me never get used to seeing men and women and boys and girls die and go to hell. Help me not be numb to that. Help me not get used to the reality that every single boy and girl and man and woman who dies without Christ will go to hell. I think what happens when we read this text, it stirs up with that last final word, will be condemned. That this absolutely matters. say one last thing, I'll be done. So, William Carey, uh, you know, 18th century uh, missionary, Baptist, was really regarded as the father of modern missions, not because of his endeavors, but because, and this is going to sound strange, he was born and raised in an environment and in a church generation in which no one thought about missions. He is the one responsible for stirring up the missions movement that we're in today. By missions movement, I mean literally taking the gospel of the Spirit. No one was talking about this. No one was thinking about this. He was in a congregational meeting <laughs> with a bunch of Baptist leaders. He was hearing them talk about all kinds of things, and he stood up and pled with them to focus their attention on taking the gospel of the nations. He pled with them. And after he was done, he sat down. An older man, a Baptist leader, looked at him and said this. Young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Now, that's kind of unconscionable to us today, right? We, we, nobody would, even if you believe that, you would not say that. <laughs> I mean, that's just, God wants to save no, save no, no one would say that. But think about this. William Carey was born into a culture in which that was what people thought, a very fatalistic, listen, if God wants to save people, it'll save people. We didn't need you or, or me to do it. That's the culture that he was raised in. And in that culture, through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, he began to be stirred up to do something more. Now, now listen, even though that statement is inconceivable today, and, and no one would say it, uh, and it really grew out of a fatalistic theology that none of us have, um, I think there is some similarities, one primary similarity between us and what that Baptist leader said. And the similarity is this. I think at the end of the day, we all think it's someone else's responsibility. I mean, that, that's what he was saying, right? If God wants to do it, he'll do it without you and me. We say, well, that's not true. I know God wants to use people to accomplish his mission. Yes, but I would say, I think where we would tend to fall under that same thought is that we always kind of assume that it's someone else's responsibility. And that God wants to stir in us a new set of spiritual eyes that looks at every person with an eternal lens and understand, listen, if they're next to me, that's my responsibility. This is my God-given assignment. God wants to do it and he wants to do it not just through people but through us, individual people sharing the gospel to other individuals. That's the way the kingdom advances. So that's the motive. The reality that God has commanded us and I love for him, we want to do it. And the simple reality that there are great consequences. Those who believe will be saved and those who do not believe will be. Here's what I want us to do as we close and uh, we'll be done here in about uh, 10 minutes. I'll close this and have a couple of things uh, to say to you. But um, if you would, I, I want to ask you to turn to a couple of people next to you and, and pray.
everybody who's just listening. If you don't feel comfortable praying out loud, that's fine. You don't have to do that. You can bow your head and listen to others. <coughs> listen. But listen, can I ask that you would do two things? Number one, instead of praying for the lost, would you pray for your own heart? I, I, I was, I've studied this text and preached this a number of times. I was moved today uh, just by thinking about how easy it is for me to forget about the reality of the consequences. And I just I just begin to pray, God, I, I don't I want my heart to be more stirred up than this for these things. So would you pray that God would stir up your heart? Because you're never going to do it without a good motive. God stir that right motive up in me. Motive is the call to action. So pray for your heart. And then I want to ask you to do this second of all. If there's someone specific on your heart, specific. I know this is about taking the gospel today, specific. Would you pray for them? I've talked to someone today who had a deep burden in their heart for someone they don't know who knows the Lord. And I, I just, would you just pray for someone you know that needs to come to Christ? So I want you to turn to When you get done, just hang out there. Stay in the spirit of prayer. I'll close this in five or six minutes, all right? And uh, we'll close the closing prayer. Let's just turn some people around. Let's take a minute.